for the next couple of weeks, we'll be uh, looking at the book called Philippians in the Bible. Uh, Philippians, uh, uh, if you're not familiar with the book, it's, uh, it's actually it's a, it's a letter written by Paul. Paul was one of the first pastors of the Christian church in the first century. We sometimes call him an apostle. Uh, a number of his letters uh, constitute what we call the New Testament in the Bible. And what makes Philippians kind of unique, it's written uh, actually while Paul is in prison. Uh, and there's a great sort of tension within the book because uh, nobody knows what's gonna, how his prison sentence is going to resolve, whether he will uh, be released, whether he might be executed, whether he might die in prison. Uh, so he's reflecting on uh, the most significant things, as you do when you're contemplating your death. Uh, and uh, in the course of this letter, he also reflects a lot, more than you would expect from someone in prison, on themes like joy. Um, and partly that is because he is writing to this Philippian church, and this Philippian church has a unique relationship with Paul. They've been taking care of him while he's in prison. Uh, they sent someone to be with him. They've sent money to provide for his needs while he's in prison. And so this is something of a thank you letter back to that congregation. That's where the warmth and the joy comes from. Uh, but he has also sort of identified some cause for concern. And we're going to be looking at that a little bit more closely today in chapter 3. So we're going to begin our scripture reading from Philippians chapter 3 with verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters... Rejoice in the Lord. So the, the word rejoice shows up all throughout this letter. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. You can sort of pick up the, the warmth in his tone, his affection for this congregation. But now put on your seatbelts, all right? Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. It sounds different to hear that from someone in prison for their faith, doesn't it? I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. 
Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already taken hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You all know what a CV is, a, a curriculum vitae. It's like a resume, but for really smart people, uh, people like professors. What you do in a CV is you list all your degrees, all right, your, your PhD and your MD, JD, ABCD, but, but also all the awards you've ever won, all the titles you've ever held, all the books and articles you've ever published. CVs are meant to be long, impressive-looking And to be honest, very boring documents. And Henry Nouwen's CV was about as good as they get. Henry was a Catholic priest, born in Europe in 1932. He was ordained as a priest at age 25. He received his first doctorate at age 32. He was promptly recruited to teach at the University of Notre Dame, Two years later, a little school named Yale came calling, recruited him to be a full professor there by the age of 35. After he'd been at Yale a little while, he started getting requests from another little school called Harvard, pleading with him to teach there. Add to those professorships, he published 40 books in his lifetime about faith, spirituality, ministry. I recommend all of them. Henry Nouwen was widely regarded as one of the most important Christian thinkers of the 20th century. But if you've ever read any of those 40 books, you know that there is this one theme that comes up again and again and again in his writing. Restlessness. This guy moved from Notre Dame to Yale to Harvard, bouncing around the most prestigious institutions in the world, all before he was 40. Everyone wanted him. And yet Nowen still felt dissatisfied. His books sold millions of copies. His accomplishments were unmatched. Yet Henry Nowen rarely enjoyed them. As amazing as his accomplishments sound to me, to him, they were not enough. Makes me think of Paul in our passage today. Paul's got a pretty good CV himself, especially for a Jewish teacher. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Each one of those lines is packed with meaning, but what Paul is really saying is this, as far as good Jewish credentials go, I'm really good. Any Jewish reader of that list would have been like, whoa, this guy is legit. But what does Paul say about all his achievements? He kind of dismissively refers to them as 
mere confidence in the flesh in verses 3 and 4. But that's really just his warm-up. By the time he gets to verse 7, now he's really going. He says, I consider all that stuff, all the stuff that made you say, whoa! I consider everything loss. He says, I consider it all garbage. The Greek word there is skubalon. Everyone say skubalon. It's kind of fun as far as Greek words go. Uh, Garbage is kind of a mild translation. I think our translators are probably trying to be polite, this being church and all. Uh, When Martin Luther, a little bit less polite, uh, one of the uh, famous pastors of the Protestant Reformation, writing 500 years ago, one of his projects was to translate the Bible into German. And he translated this word, Scheiße. Don't know if you all know German. Uh, Excrement is probably a better word. Manure, maybe. Or to be honest, a better word in English is probably crap. He considers all that he has accomplished scubalon. And this is a little strange. The Apostle Paul is not famous for his coarse language. But in verse 8, he's basically swearing. And in verse 2, he has called those he disagrees with dogs. For an apostle, this is like really, really ticked off. So what exactly is Paul so mad about? What is happening that has him so bent out of shape? I mean, are these people trafficking children? Are they mistreating the poor? Are they blaspheming God? I mean, what is it? These dogs, these mutilators of the flesh, these evildoers, I mean, these people must be awful, right? Well, not really. It turns out that these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh, these evildoers are actually pretty good people. This group is sometimes called Judaizers. They were kind of a subgroup of Jewish Jesus followers, and they followed God's law very closely, as you'd expect from a Jew, and they tried to eat right. They followed all the Jewish customs, and they also believed in Jesus, which I don't know. Sounds pretty good to me. What was it about these people that has Paul so wound up? Well, you see, these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh, they had this particular belief. They believed that in order to be a good Christian, you also had to be like them. You had to be a good Jew. In fact, they would say if you weren't a good Jew, if you didn't eat a a Jewish diet, if you didn't follow Moses' law, if you weren't circumcised, you were really just like a second-class Christian. One pastor I read for the sermon compared the Judaizers to a game of tag. You all play much tag? I've got a three-, four-, and six-year-old. I play a fair bit of tag. Uh, And when the bakers play tag, there's usually something on the playground 
that's safe, right? You remember this? That the swings are safe, or the slides are safe, or the, the dinosaur is safe. It's not, it's not a real dinosaur. R- real dinosaurs are not safe. This is like a, it's like a plastic dinosaur. Anyway, the idea is if you are touching the swings, you, you can't be it because you're safe. Well, the gospel that Paul preaches throughout this letter and in other parts of the Bible has made this kind of basic argument that if you're touching Jesus, by that he means if, if, you, if you put your faith in Jesus, you're safe. The Judaizers, though, they played a more complicated game of tag. All right? So they said basically, like, if you put your faith in Jesus... Plus, like do the food thing, plus follow Jewish law, plus get circumcised, then you're safe, right? In other words, if you're touching the swings and the slide and the dinosaur and the merry-go-round all at the same time, then you're safe. And Paul, he turns to these Judaizers and he's like, guys, your game stinks. It's just, it's a terrible game. Well, he doesn't say it exactly like that. Instead, he says, listen, listen, he says, he says, I am very good at your game. If you want, we can play by those rules, but you should know I will win. I mean, you want hoops? I can jump through hoops. I can touch the slide and the swings and the dinosaur and the merry-go-round all at the same time. I am good at your game. You say a Christian needs to be a good Jew. I'm a better Jew than you. I'm as good as they get. But then he says, you know what I think of all my mad tag-playing skills? Scubalon. I consider it all loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. He says, my game is so much better. You see, Paul is getting at something that is really at the heart of our Christian faith. A a commentator I read for this sermon said it this way. He said, you know, sin is actually not the main thing that keeps us from God righteousness is. So we, can we get that image up, Dan? Some of you might recognize this one. Um, so there's like, there's like two sides here, okay? So like in the foreground, that's like where we are, people. And then on the far side, that's like where God is. It's like heaven. And the idea is there's like this big pit between us, like this divide. We, we can't get to be where God is. And the thing that's in between us is sin, And so the idea is that God sends Jesus, he dies on the cross, the cross resolves our sin problem so that we can have access to God, we can be near to God. So you've got the the cross sort of connecting us to God, okay? And the idea is like, that's what we think of as what, what is keeping us from God, it's that it's our sin. But Paul's got a different idea kind of working here. He says, listen, the biggest thing keeping us from God, it's not our sin, it's our righteousness. Now, what, what even is righteousness? Righteousness is kind of an old word. Um, it's really just a way of saying stuff that makes you good enough. Righteousness is stuff that makes you good enough. So what are the things that make us good enough? 
Um, like, be a good neighbor. Work hard. Make good choices. Go to church. Don't cheat. Don't be a bully. You do those things, you're a good person. Those things are righteousness. And some of us are pretty righteous. We do a lot of good stuff. Some of you show up at every church event and and you're honest at work and you're nice at school and you're a good neighbor and a good student. Some of us have a lot of righteousness to our credit. But what does Paul say about all this righteousness? What does he say about all these accomplishments? Scubalon. Scubalon compared to knowing Christ. The biggest thing that keeps us from God, it's not our sin, it's our righteousness. See, uh, sinners, sinners when, they, when they realize they're sinners, they start looking for help. Like sinners know they, they need a Savior. It, it's not sinners who have the most trouble getting to God, it's good people. Because uh, good people, see, people who make good choices and, and people who live in nice houses and have happy families and good people who, who vote for the right party and, and have the right opinions and keep the right yard signs in front of their house, like good people aren't always sure what they would even really need a Savior for. Right? Good people think, I'm pretty good. They're not looking for a Savior because... They're not really sure they necessarily need one. Not a savior anyway. I mean, if, if you're a good person, the cross maybe doesn't make much sense. I mean, good grief. This, this guy had to die? And he did it for me? I mean, sure. I mean, maybe, maybe I need a hand from time to time. Like I need a boost, some, some spiritual inspiration. But the cross, ooh. I mean, isn't that kind of overkill? Surely I don't need God to send His Son to die to to save me. I mean, I've got problems, but I mean, that sounds serious. And so Jesus goes from being your Savior to being, I don't know, like your inspiration, your guide. You don't need his blood. You need, like, his good quotes to put in your Instagram feed. And that's the problem. See, the the biggest thing keeping us from God is our belief that we're not sinners, or at least not that bad of sinners. For, For most of us, it's the belief that we're really actually pretty close to being good enough. And I know this is probably a little confusing because you're thinking, like, Sean, I I thought it was good to be good. That's true. Absolutely. Paul himself, he's constantly telling people to be good. Uh, What did he say in verse 12? He's he's pressing on. Verse 13, he's straining for the prize. Paul is not at all opposed to effort. For him, wanting to do what's right and obeying God, that is the natural consequence of putting your faith in God. If someone didn't want to be good or didn't care about obeying God, that would be weird. You'd expect faith in God to lead to someone wanting to be good. So yeah, it's good to be good, but this is the critical question. Where do you find your righteousness? 
What makes you confident that you're safe? Are you confident because you're touching all the right things at all the right times? I go to church and I volunteer and I've got the right bumper stickers and I like the right causes on Facebook and I give to the right charities. I'm a good person. Are you confident because you're touching all the right things at all the right times? Or are you confident because you're touching Jesus? Paul feared that these Judaizers looked to all the things they were touching, their Jewishness, the laws they kept, the customs they observed. Paul feared they trusted their own goodness to keep them safe. Now the problem is, as you've probably noticed, what the world says we need to do or believe to be good, that's always changing. There's always another cause we need to be excited about. There's another banner we need to put behind our profile picture. There's another sign to put in the yard. As far as the world's concerned, you're never good enough. You can always be trying harder. You can always be doing more. And so instead, we slip into comparing. We may not be really good people, but at least we know who the bad people are. And we know what signs they put in their yards. And we know what things they say on Facebook. And at least I'm better than those people. But Paul is like, no! No, the Christian faith is not about comparing. He says the only place he wants to look for his righteousness, the only reason he knows he's safe, is Jesus. Paul does good things, but he doesn't worry about whether those things are good enough because Paul knows that Christ is totally enough. Christ is so completely enough that Paul considers these other things in his life to be scubalon compared to Christ. He's not against that stuff. He's not against trying hard. He just knows that when it comes to God, he doesn't need it. Which brings me back to Henry Nouwen. After he'd been teaching at Harvard for a while, he was burned out. He'd actually never been more popular, he'd never been more successful, and he'd never been less happy. And then a friend invited him to check out and eventually move into a L'Arche community. And L'Arche is a, it's a, a group of homes all around the world where people with severe disabilities live together in Christian community with live-in caretakers. So Nowen found his way to a large community near Toronto, and part of his job every day was taking care of Adam. Adam couldn't speak. Adam couldn't read. Adam couldn't feed himself, couldn't dress himself, couldn't bathe himself, couldn't scuble on himself. Just about everything Adam did, he needed Henry's help. In other words, Nowen went to about the only community in the world that really could not appreciate his righteousness. They didn't know or really care about Yale and Harvard. They just cared, will you help me put on my pants? Will you help me to the bathroom? 
But you know what? It was in that community that Nouwen began to understand something that he could have just read in Philippians, which is this. When Henry put his trust in Jesus Christ, Henry plus not a single accomplishment in the world, Henry plus not a single book published, not a single professorship. Henry plus no ordination. When Henry put his hope in Jesus Christ, Henry plus nothing else was completely enough for God. It's not until you see your accomplishments as a scubalon that you can realize, I need a Savior. And it's not until you realize, I need a Savior, that you can appreciate how enough Jesus is. It's not that we don't still do good things. It's not that accomplishments are bad. But when you put your faith in Jesus, all those accomplishments, they're just extra. They're gravy. All those accomplishments can be taken away and forgotten. Frankly, you can be a failure to everyone around you. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you plus nothing else will be completely enough for God. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being enough. Whatever prevents us from trusting you, remove it. Whatever extra we put beside you, expose it and displace it. May we find that in you we have more than all we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.